Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. The Marshall Tucker Band brings its 50th anniversary tour to Capital One Hall in Tyson's, Virginia on Sunday night. I spoke with lead singer Doug Gray about how the band got its name, as well as its biggest hits from Can't You See to Hurtin' in a Love Song. Hey, Doug Gray, lead singer of Marshall Tucker Band. Thanks so much for calling in. Hey, thank you very much. I appreciate that you having me. Now we're talking because uh, you're bringing the 50th anniversary tour of Marshall Tucker Band to Capital One Hall in Tyson's, Virginia. That that venue just opened like within the last year, so it's pretty new. But uh, what, what, tell us about the 50th anniversary tour. I guess I'm, I assume it's playing all the old hits. Is there anything new? Any covers? Like what co- sort of stuff can we expect? Well, I I tell you what, it's it's a mixture of all the old and the new and the things that we haven't done in quite a while primarily because and i say that it's because a lot of people say well new stuff of course we play new stuff all the time but uh or we wouldn't be around for 50 years you lit you don't marshall tucker band don't live on just the original eight nine ten songs okay we live on the stuff that we're preparing for everybody else and i never follow a set list so if somebody in the audience screams something out i have the ability to come up with the lyrics and then the band all of a sudden goes hey you know i know that song and they'll come in too so it makes for a little bit more excitement instead of the same old blah 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 you know yeah exactly and even though the old same old stuff is is legendary stuff but it's nice to have a variety for sure um all right cool so so take so uh take whenever I have someone on, I'd love to hear about you know your whole journey. So I know you were you yourself were born in, in Spartanburg, uh South Carolina back in 48. Um and didn't you know some of the, the right. guys, some of the band guys back in high school? Like t- tell me tell me about the new generation and the rants and how those old bands sort of ended up uh, com- <laughs> combining. <laughs> well, Tommy, Tommy Caldwell come to me one night. He said, Come on over to this guy's house. His name was Randy Foster. He's Professor Foster now, and uh, uh, he's yeah. He he didn't care that much about playing music at that point. So uh, we got together, uh, stayed together for a while as that band, and then Toy uh, wanted to start a band. We all went to the same high school, but one person, and then everybody said, "Well, you know, we got to go to military. War was going on." So, uh, Toy went first, I went second, Tommy third, and then George went. Then we all went in the military, and I came back as sergeant. Toy came back that, I think. And then we came back, and we were sitting around and said, well, you know, we got this. Why don't we find a place to rehearse? And we did, and it was about 100 square foot. It was smaller than a hotel room. And uh, we started just going there twice a week. 
for about an hour and a half every night. And oh, every night that we rehearsed, we had a bunch of different songs. Plus, we had to play commercial stuff, and we didn't have a real name. We Toy was not going to name it Toy. He didn't want us to do it that way. And then I didn't want to become a new generation all over again. And so we didn't want to go back all the way to the Gilsman. That was in 1901 or something. I don't know. But uh, it was it was kind of, as I chuckle about that, that was one of the, the first bands I was ever into, the Gilsman. And they were, oh, gosh, 1958 or something like that. I don't know. But yeah, I was 10 years old. That's about right. And um, we just we just wanted to play. We didn't care. And to this day, it's still fun to go out there. Sometimes you might play for 5,000 people. You might play for 300. You might go in like we did in Manhattan and play for 40 people and then turn right around and then open for the Allman Brothers at a sold-out Madison Square Garden show. <laughs> so then, you know, we played for the Grateful Dead, and then we with the Grateful Dead at English town had 160,000 people there and we had the helicopter in and out. So things were just getting freaky. You know, that we had no idea what was going to happen. And second of all, we never really expected anymore. Okay. We, we never once expected the next day to be better or the longevity that we had have had now me being the sole guy that's that's alive. I mean, Paul and, and uh, Jerry's still alive, but they don't play anymore, okay? And they haven't played for 25, 30 years. So it, it makes for a little bit of, it makes for a little bit more excitement because this band has been with me now is 25 years, to, except for the bass player. And I changed the bass player about two, two years ago. And... You know, because the other guy needed to stay home with his kids. And, you know, I've watched a lot of people come and go and crew and stuff like that. But the whole thing started primarily because we just wanted to get together because I liked him playing. He liked the way that I sang. We needed an extra person to do this. So we called these people up when we were talking to them. And, you know, they said, yeah, we'll meet you up there. Hence the Marshall Tucker band. And we found a key uh, that opened the door to let us in. And on the key, there was a tag and it was a little small round white tag. And it had uh, Marshall Tucker on it. Marshall Tucker is still alive. He's blind piano tuner, doing well. He uh, left Spartanburg to uh, pursue a dream of being a, a choir instructor in Columbia, South Carolina. And I'm giving you a whole lot of information, but I can not what you can do with it. So it's it was kind of nice. We have stayed in touch. We've been friends. He got tired of doing the Marshall Tucker band stuff. Said, man, I just want to be away from that for a while. He he never was part of the band, but he, he loved the fact that we weren't tearing his name up. You know what I mean? We're throwing televisions out the window and things like that so i mean a lot of people were doing that during that period of time we went through so you know over 50 years people have done some really weird stuff that i had to step up and take the blame because i was the only one that was halfway together so that i could get down there and talk to them i, I did it with a sense of humor okay 
<laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, gosh, you, you gave me so many things I wanted to ask you about in there. Um, but um, yeah, remind our listeners, you just mentioned it, um, that um, that the name Marshall Tucker obviously is there's no, it, there's that's not named anyone in the band that that's comes from the key the blind you said it's a blind piano tuner no. going into your rehearsal space and it was on the key. Well, now what happened is we we had to rent that spot that was that we were using, so I think it was like five dollars a month or something like that, and so we'd leave our equipment in there and it was a little place we called home for us just to rehearse and uh, you know it was cheap and found out that the key was used for Marshall Tucker if they needed to get in there, okay? Now, Marshall is a a strong man, still doing well. His wife is blind as well, but he went to Glen Springs uh, Blind and blind and other handicapped school down there, and they taught him how to do that kind of stuff. Plus, he was toned per- pitch perfect, and... Uh, so he used that back in the old days. You had great big old pianos, you know, and they'd come get him, and then he'd bring them down parts to the to that little bitty room. And uh, then he moved, and sure enough, about a, I guess about six months to a year later, we needed a place to rent, and we went up there and got it. Never even thought to care about the name. We just or the number. We just went down the street, and that was it. You know. Wow. Well, I'm I'm sure he was uh he was probably uh grateful that that you 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 made his name famous. <laughs> you 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 blew up. Um, no, but the thing is, is he's he's still a famous person. So I mean, right. he was extremely famous uh, doing what he was doing because everybody had to have him because he was pitch perfect and he could tune a piano so well. And you know, he and plus he taught. He was in charge of the course uh, in the church for. Um, Gosh, uh, for over forty years. Wow, that's wild. So right, well, I mean, then, he was—he was a strong man. Definitely. Well, that's—it's a really—it's a really cool tribute that you know you name your whole band after him. Um. Well, all right. So then I know in '73 you guys signed with Capricorn for you know your first your self-titled debut album, and of course the big lead single off that can't you see? Might I mean? Uh, at least today, it might be the one we most people know you from. That's that thing is iconic. So take me into you know the how that one was written and recorded. Any any memories of being in studio cutting that one? Yeah, we cut it in three different places, and the first one was at Muscle Shoals. We went down there and cut it, and and we had real producers. You know, it was during Muscle Shoals hot time period. Oh yeah. So we went in and recorded three songs and. Uh, you know, didn't really know anything much about it, but somebody paid for it, so we went down there. Then, uh, oh, I think we paid for it, and uh, uh, came back, and you know, then we had something that we needed to do over in Greenville Studio, which is thirty miles away from Spartanburg. And when we did that, uh, you know, we walked out with three or four songs, and that was "Can't You See" and "Take the Highway" and "Heard It in Love Song." Okay. Both songs were around for a long time, and so we had a different. You listen to them live, and you listen to them, uh, listen to them live, and listen to the recording. You find a completely different style, not change it, but a style change. And that was primarily because we were changing it as we were going. We were understanding that you know there's there's a way to go seventy miles an hour if you want to, or you can go forty. You know, 
So we changed that, and we realized that people wanted it upbeat a little bit more, and so we moved it up to upbeat a little bit more. But as far as can't you see, it's in about five or six Netflix movies, four or five Amazons. Um, <laughs> my God. Uh, it's everywhere. You know, it's in all kind of movies. Well, why, why do you think it took off so much? Is it that, I mean, that opening flute is kind of a unique thing for a Southern rock song. And then the way you, the vocals too, just come in and it's like a pleading wailing about, you know, how I've been heartbroken. I mean, there's so much cool about that song. Right. I think it's every, it's every guy's dream and it's every woman's dream in a lot of ways. Okay. Which is all cool to us because there's so many spots. Johnny Depp, uh, did it in book, that movie Blow. Okay, right. he used it there. So as we, uh, you know, if I, you know, that's the one song out of 330 songs that I, one song, one of the three songs I didn't sing. <laughs> Funny how that works, right? Isn't that weird? <laughs> so you were, now, you were there for it, of course, yeah. Oh, yeah, we all had a part in, in putting it all together. But uh, the thing is, is Toy came up with it. And then when I heard him sing it, I said, my God, man, I can't sing it like that because my voice is a little bit smoother. And his voice was testifying. Right, right. And that's why they like it in certain movies, because it's, it makes a point. It has a lyric. There's a song I think uh, Amazon's got in a movie coming up. Uh, or TV program. I don't know. Anyway, uh, I do know about them because I've seen them and had to prove them. But the, I guess in each, it's some of those songs have such lyrics that it fits a lot of episodes in movies that you wish you could hear this yeah. particular song come in. Whether it be Can't You See, I Should Have Never Started Loving You. Mine was the first one. That was called I Should Have Never Started Loving You. He's playing in Brussels and Belgium right now. Wow. Okay. So I don't know why. I know that it fit the movie. They were all getting saved off an island. So I Should Have Never Started Loving You was the song. <laughs> That's so cool. It, it show up everywhere. Things. Yeah, well, you never know. In, in Paris, you know, sometimes things like that pop up. We don't know. We don't try to emulate that part of it what we try to do is just have that stuff ready there's some songs that people ask us to write for particular movies that were crap and we didn't let them out <laughs> so uh, you know it's you know they're just there's things that you don't want to get associated with and we knew what it was because we get to see a little bit of the script the only one i regret was urban cowboy okay that was the one thing that we did not want to do for some dumb reason because we were the cowboys out there riding range knocking the beer bottles over and you know knocking the people over it well because you know everybody looked at us and they said oh redneck cowboys here they are you know we looked like the the six guys that was riding into town a hooping and a hollering you know getting ready to tear up the town you know that's what we looked like did you just quote blazing saddles <laughs> Right yeah, in town. Uh, well, thank you. Riding in a town. A whooping and a whooping. Every living thing that moves. <laughs> uh, awesome. <laughs> well, um, that's great. Uh, thanks for giving me all that movie gold. I didn't know we'd even go into that. Thank you. Um, real quick, t tell me about um, a lot of our listeners are, are going to remember your big top 40 hit, Fire on the Mountain. Didn't, that, didn't Charlie Daniels slide in to do a guest appearance on the fiddle on that one? 
every uh, yeah, Charlie played on our first four records. Okay. okay? Because we hit, and I just went to Charlie's funeral this last year, and uh, it was tough. I saw his son the other night when we played the Grand Ole Opry. A lot of people don't think we're country enough to play the Grand Ole Opry, but we've been there four or five times. We've been invited to be there. Sold our shows. It's kind of strange, but we had a whole lot of country stuff, and it was a lot with, and that was Rod McEwen playing on it as well, and there was a lot of artists that just wanted to. There's guys from Tower of Power that came in and played on certain records. But everybody wanted to play with Marshall Tucker because we took it to a new groove. It was like a jazz band. Everybody bring your instrument and play whatever you got. Play whatever you brought, you know. And we made room for each person, you know. Music can work with anything. Any kind of music can work any way you want it. Oh, well, you look you look at a lot of today's country music. It sounds a lot like what you guys were doing in the Southern Rock back in the day. It's I mean, it's pretty much become that in a lot of ways. So, uh, th- of course, well, they, be- they know, better let you sing at the Opry. <laughs> well, but, uh, no, you would think that, but we didn't for, you know, for a lot of years, 20 years. We never, never got that choice. But then I walk in and there's people that, like Linda, little Jimmy Dickens, who's passed now. Kitty Wales did one of our songs in 1965. Excuse me, 1967, and uh, you know, Kitty Wells, she's she's the queen of of southern stuff. Her and Loretta, you know, so of that country rock, I call it country era, and that was that was a lot of rock and roll. It was according to what kind of station you were playing on, you know, and those people were important. We learned from those people, you know. One minute somebody'd be playing. Uh, uh, Kitty Wales and the other minute I'd be playing Pointer Sisters, you know, and they go, what in the hell are you listening to? Well, I grew up singing rhythm and blues before there was ever a Marshall Tucker band. I was singing Sam and Dave and people like that, and then we all sang Sam and Dave, and then all of a sudden, we messed together, left and went to service, came back and was at an ability, uncanny ability to be able to play some funky music white boy <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> yeah well that's true i mean you 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 and a lot of artists of that era, i mean ever we all we all grow up on a variety of stuff and so it, our, the music winds up being a fusion of all the different genres right there's a lot of music that's being abused today that you know are kind of i can't say anything bad about it but i can say that i think there's a lot of songs and and Waylon would say it best, you know, if if you want a real good halftime show, and I have played Super Bowl, okay, pre-Super Bowl and after Super Bowl and all that stuff. We've had two or three times to do that. But you know what? They People come to be entertained at halftime, okay? I did not think that was a terrible show, but I don't think it was for the people because people could not see it on the other side. I think it's generational. It's stuff that it's stuff that my era grew up with. My my parents, yeah. are, my parents are probably like, "What is this? <laughs> what are you listening to?" But I, I my uh, my yeah. my my friends and I knew every single song. So I, it really was a generational one. I think. Um, well, can I tell you something? I live with a girl that's twenty years younger than me. Okay, she's been my girlfriend for eleven years. Okay, been married three or four times, and we're watching it and. I was explaining to her, and I played for the Panthers and uh, the Ravens, right? 
you play those shows and you come out and you recognize you're singing to the whole audience. That was my only downfall to her. And my daughter, who was 29 years old, and one of my daughters is 29, the other one's 40. They're both doctors, okay? So uh, I look at it like this. Is it, is it monumental to be from an age group and not recognize it to the other side of the audience, the other side of that 70,000 people could not see what you were aiming at on the cameras? It was very important. You know, you're just not playing for you're not playing for one side. You're playing for the whole world. I do think some of those songs are pretty good. You know. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, that guy's that I grew up on a lot of that stuff. Um, did you? Um, yeah. Eminem. First time I heard Eminem, I said, "Play that again." You know, my my <laughs> youngest daughter. That was a long time ago. Do you remember the first Eminem song that you heard from your daughter? <laughs> yeah, it was the first one on the record. Nice. I can't think of the, uh, uh, what I could do. I, I can't think of the name. It might, of it right might have been. It might have been the. Right. It might have been the real Slim Shady, probably back in the day. Real uh, Slim Shady. That's right. Bum, 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 bum. Yeah, that one. Uh, it had the beat. That's why you remember it. It had the beat. Exactly. <laughs> it had that beat. It hooked me. Now I'm seventy something years old. You know. I didn't know I'd be uh, talking Eminem with the Marshall Tucker Band. <laughs> well, uh, you know, it's not that far away. Okay. Yeah, regardless true. of the fact he could come in here and make something good very creative guy with his help you know with all his people he's got with him you know kenny I, there was a lot rest in peace kenny rogers said, had a line a couple years ago where he said um it was back around the 2000s and he said the best rapper's white and the best golfer's black and it's about damn time <laughs> i guess it's tiger <laughs> well, he would say that but yeah right one of the guys that produced one of my records that's not out there right now was larry butler and he produced the gambler for kenny rest in peace hey real quick before we hop off here uh we've taken a lot of fun tangents here <laughs> into a lot of stuff but um i do i want to make sure our listeners give you something to do the rest of the afternoon let you okay. edit all this down yeah right thanks you're making it easy <laughs> um yeah okay no Ted, you mentioned it really quick my listeners will kill me if i don't ask you about heard it in a love song you mentioned it earlier but um i mean that I think that wound up being your top charting hit, like the highest on the charts, at least. But like Heard It In A Love song, the way it is, it Heard It In Love. I mean, the way it kicks in. Why do you think that song really caught the people's imagination? Oh, because it's something that's not presented to you on a platter. Okay. Uh, to me, you know, I put off singing that song. I'll tell you a real good story. Okay. For a whole year, we had the song finished, except for the, my lead vocal. And I said, man, we play good songs. We don't just play this stuff, you know. This is the weakest, going to be the weakest song on the record. And sure enough, whole year, I used to, ah, I got cough. I got a cough. I can't go down there. We're on the road. It's more important than we go on the road. Let's keep doing it. And so I just put it off for a whole year. And then they said, all right, we're getting ready to put the record out. Do you want that song on there? I went, hey, I'll go down there and try it one more time. So I sang it one more time. Within three weeks after its release, it became a teeny bopper song, okay, for people of certain ages. I mean, I was hearing the kids uh, did like, like they did with Eminem the first time they heard You know what I mean? It changed our whole thing. You know, and I'll say that that way only because that, Heard in love song. It identifies with Southern red, rednecks. Okay. 
But then you look out there and there's a lot of women singing that to their, their wife or their girlfriend. Okay. You look out there and there's a lot of men singing it to their girlfriend. And there's a lot of it. And I watch this stuff. I see that people have a togetherness because of that song. They have a memory that's tied to the first time they ever heard that song on the radio. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure it just brings the memories right back. It's yep, a, it's such it a good one. It's such a good one. It really is. Um, yeah, yeah I mean, so yeah, I mean, thank you. We've 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 covered a lot in here. Um, is is there anything else you want to say about the 50th anniversary tour? Let, let's sort of let's bring it full circle back around because that's when our listeners going to come see at Capital One Hall. Um, can you believe it's been 50 years? I mean, is is it gratifying to look back and see you've done you know over 20 studio albums, you know all all the hits, all the tours? I mean, it's it's got to be surreal to think it's been 50 freaking years. <laughs> you know what it is, has? If I would have imagined. The only thing I really wanted to do was sing, okay? So I would imagine that 50 years from now, first of all, nobody thinks that way. You know, everybody has a five-year plan, even uh, economists, you know? Oh, we got a five-year plan. Maybe we get the government to think that way for for a change. But uh, everybody has a five-year plan. I don't know why. I don't know why they picked five years. To me, it was a day-by-day thing when I was growing up, Okay. But why did I think that it would last? It was because once I got in the military, I realized that people loved to be loved. And we felt like, and I knew I could sing that way to show them that I cared. And that was the only real relationship I had. My penmanship wasn't that good for relating back. You know, I couldn't write it valentine card okay i had to buy one but when it comes to singing them something look at teddy pendergrass and all these other people you know they sing it and people melt right i couldn't do that i could sing it to them but i couldn't write it right of course i did write some hit songs but that's beside the point that's a different story than what what you're looking for what what makes marshall tucker band think we could be around 50 years from now is the fact of our loyalty of our crowds. Exactly. And uh, that's that's what's going to be coming out to Capital One Hall. Thank you so much for joining us. I really, really appreciate right, it. Thanks, brother. All right. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.